May we pray. In the words of Barbara Brown Taylor, Come, Holy Ghost, our souls inspire. Enlighten us with your celestial fire. For if you are not with us, then nothing else matters. And if you are with us, then nothing else matters. Be with St. James this morning, Lord, we plead and we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I get what it means when it says Jesus wept. As a young Baptist, Growing up with scripture memorization contests, I could confidently say that John 11:35, Jesus wept, was the shortest verse in the Bible. But then I went to seminary and things got complicated. Shortest verse in English or in the original Greek, the professor would say. And which English translation? Oh boy. So whether Jesus wept is the shortest verse in the Bible or not is robustly debatable. But I at least know what it means. He cried. Whether because his dear friend was dead or because his close friends thought it was too late for him to do anything about it, or both, but he cried. However, before Jesus cried, he experienced another strong emotion. And we find that in verse 33. But what does verse 33 mean? What does it mean that Jesus was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved? Well, many believe that this is just John elaborating on the weeping, on the intense emotion Jesus might be feeling about the death of his friend Lazarus. But this morning, I'm going to share with you that it's more complicated than that. The English translation, greatly disturbed in spirit, comes from a complex Greek phrase. And because this phrase has haunted me for the last several days, I will now graciously introduce it to you. The phrase is embrimaomai. Embry maomai. And there is a cluster of meanings, but most scholars agree it is a, a, a deep, guttural groan inspired by anger. It, it is to sternly charge. It, it, it is often associated with horses to mean a, a, an emotional grunt or snort. In essence, 
an anguished groan. So where does that leave us? Well, let's look at the context. In the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John, we find the seventh and final sign of Jesus as recorded by John. In the course of Jesus' life, he has become very close friends with this little family from Bethany. Two sisters, Mary and Martha, and their brother, Lazarus. And Jesus loves Lazarus. Lazarus has fallen ill, and so the sisters send a message to Jesus to come quickly, lest he die. But Jesus declines and stays where he is. And by the time Jesus finally makes it back to Bethany, Lazarus has been dead for four days. A crowd has formed. And the sisters, not surprisingly, are experiencing very strong emotions. And they're not just experiencing very strong emotions, they are expressing very strong emotions. They are angry and grief-stricken. And the crowd is seeing all of this. They don't understand why Jesus tarried. They both say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And the rest of the story is quite simple. Jesus tells them not to worry. He asks to be taken to the tomb of Lazarus. He commands someone to remove the stone in front of the grave. He calls Lazarus to come forth. And Lazarus does. Amidst the four-day stench of death, a man appears bound in strips of cloth, and Jesus commands, unbind him and let him go. Unbind him and let him go. And many who didn't believe in Jesus before, believed now. And that's the story, folks. But before Jesus calls Lazarus forth, he also experiences very strong emotions. He also expresses those very strong emotions. Jesus weeps. But before he sheds a single tear, he experiences this other strong emotion, this anguished groan. Before Jesus reacts to the death of his beloved friend with tears, he reacts to something else with an anguished groan. What was happening with Jesus? As with many biblical insights, the clues for this come before and after the text, before and after the raising of Lazarus. And right before Jesus receives the message of the death of Lazarus, he is on the opposite side of the Jordan River, having escaped an execution. That's right. Good Friday, friends, is not the only time an arrest and execution was attempted on Jesus. 
Right before this Lazarus story, Jesus was in Jerusalem in the temple, and the religious leaders who were stalking Jesus were concerned with one thing and one thing only. Was Jesus claiming to be God? You see, the tradition allowed for great prophets, allowed for great men and women of God, Elijah and Elisha, Deborah and Esther, Gideon and Rahab, they all, through God, did some miraculous and heroic things. But none of them, not a single one, claimed to be God. So as the religious leaders are following Jesus around, even seeing him perform miracles and signs, their ears are burning to hear just one thing. Blasphemy. And just a few days before Lazarus dies, Jesus is in the temple chatting with the leaders, and it happens. He gives the strongest statement about his divinity yet recorded. In John chapter 10 and verse 30, Jesus says, The Father and I are one. And there it was. That's what they needed. And immediately, they took up stones to stone him. They then put hands on him to arrest him. And the Bible says Jesus escaped from their hands. And where did this heart-pounding scene take place? Just two miles from the house of Lazarus. When Jesus escaped death, he crossed the River Jordan to get away from the place right near the house of Lazarus. So when Jesus receives the message to come back to the neighborhood where the house of Lazarus is, he knew he would be returning to a place that had a bounty on his head. The disciples also knew. So they said to him, Rabbi, they begged him, the Jews were, were just now trying to stone you, and are you going there again? So he went there again, knowing they were looking to kill him, knowing that if he did anything that further pointed to his divinity, to his being God, he would likely not escape death a second time. So here he is. Can you see him being begged by people he loves so dearly to be God? To perform a miracle. And not just any miracle, up to this point in the Gospel of John, there are six recorded signs. He turns water into wine, he heals an official son, he heals a lame man, feeds the multitudes, walks on water, and heals a man born blind. Wine? Food? Disease? That's one thing. 
But resurrection? That's another. The religious leaders of the time firmly believed in resurrection, but only on the judgment day. Only at the end of the age. So to do it now would not just be saying that you are God. It would be some kind of proof. If Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead right now, he would be sealing his fate. It would set into motion that dark day on Calvary's hill. It would be the point of no return. Is that worthy of an anguished groan? And sure enough, some in the crowd, after witnessing the raising of Lazarus, run to the Pharisees and the high priests. They call a meeting of the council. And friends, we have a transcript of that meeting. We've got the meeting minutes. What are we to do, they say? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. So from that day on, they plan to put him to death. What are we to do, they say? It was the point of no return. During this Lenten journey, are we prepared for our points of no return? As we follow the path of Jesus, knowing full well where it leads, are we prepared for our points of no return? Coming to this gorgeous sanctuary on the Upper East Side of Manhattan once or twice a week is such a gift. Singing some beautiful songs with great musicians is such a gift. But I doubt those would confound the powers that be. I, I doubt those actions will leave any societal power brokers who peddle hate and division Leave them asking, what are we to do? But what if? What if, like Jesus, we decided to speak truth to power? What if we said to the white supremacists, unbind marginalized people of color and let them go? What if you said to the purveyors of misogyny and sexism, unbind her and let her go? What if you said to the leaders in power who are preying on our trans kids and kids with different gender identities and expressions, unbind them and let them go? What if we said to the prison industrial complex who makes big money on incarcerating our disproportionately black, brown, and poor siblings, unbind them and let them go? What if we said to polluting industrial corporations with a death grip on our environment, unbind the planet and let it go? What if we said to our evangelical Christian nationalists who are perverting the image of Jesus to unbind the gospel and let it go? What if we said to the 
sharpest edge of our capitalistic system, making the most profit in human history, and yet content with homeless neighbors, chronic poverty, and hungry children to unbind our safety nets and let them go. Does our current faith commitment strike fear in the heart of the status quo? Jesus's did. Does your faith strike fear in the heart of empire? Jesus's did. Does your faith strike fear in the heart of the power that perpetuates spiritual and economic poverty? Jesus's did. Does the way we practice our faith leave the self-centric world around us asking, what are we to do? Jesus knew that this seventh sign, this raising of a dead man in public view would be the point of no return. But with you in mind, beloved, and with me in mind, he did it anyway. He did it anyway. With him in mind, what are you willing to do anyway? Amen.